From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Colorado is known for its great outdoors, preserving open space and public land. But there's a rift among the state's congressional delegation about what the next move should be when it comes to wilderness areas. Plus, a shakeup at RTD at a time when the mass transit agency is struggling to get more people to jump on board. We'll look at the impact the CEO stepping down could have. Then, a Colorado researcher takes an emotional journey to ask why more than 160 Tibetans have self-immolated over the last decade. A number of Tibetans have decided that drastic measures were needed that they thought might benefit other Tibetans to alleviate the suffering that the community was going through. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Colorado's congressional delegation has long held a reputation for being able to work well together on issues of importance to the state. But fault lines are appearing over some public lands bills. CPR's Washington, D.C. reporter Caitlin Kim is here to talk us through the issues. Thanks for joining us, Caitlin. Hi, Avery. Let's talk about the House of Representatives, a bill from Democratic Representative Diana DeGette to protect Colorado's wilderness areas passed out of the House Natural Resources Committee last week. But Colorado's delegation split along party lines over the legislation. What's the disagreement over? So the Colorado Wilderness Act is something Representative DeGette has been working on since 1999. It protects 32 areas over 600,000 acres. Much of it already has some kind of federal protections, and about two-thirds is already managed as wilderness area. So Republican Doug Lamborn uh, argued that wilderness designation can be too restrictive, and that some of the people who currently enjoy these areas might not continue to do so if it becomes a wilderness designation. But what really concerned Lamborn was the fact that he felt like there wasn't enough local consultations done. This is what he had to say during the committee hearing on the bill. I know that Representative Tipton has the, the majority of the acreage of this bill in his congressional district. Uh, he does not believe that he was fully consulted and he, he is not supportive of this bill. So to me, that weighs very heavily. Now, Representative Tipton is a Republican, and he said in a statement that the bill doesn't, quote, incorporate the necessary adjustments needed to garner more community support. In other words, some areas in the state don't want more wilderness designations, such as Montezuma County. Now, to get pushed back on some of those points, she said she's worked with Lamborn, Tipton, and their predecessors on this bill. She also says she's been talking to different stakeholders on the ground. Ultimately, this is what she had to say about the criticism. It's not just one person who controls all of the public land in their district. Public lands belong to everybody. And the people on the ground approached her about designating these areas as wilderness. She has changed it from when she first reintroduced it earlier this year. For example, she removed Deep Creek out of an abundance of caution to ensure it doesn't impact the high-altitude aviation training center. So she has made adjustments based on feedback. The Colorado Wilderness Act passed out of the committee on a party-line vote, though. This sounds very familiar. It's some of the same argument used with another public lands bill for Colorado that the House passed last month, the CORE Act, right? Exactly. The CORE Act is a large public lands bill introduced by Democratic Representative Joe Neguse in the House and Democratic Senator Michael Bennett in the Senate. You know, they took four separate measures that previous lawmakers had introduced, the Continental Divide Recreation Wilderness and Camp Hale Act, the San Juan Mountains uh, Wilderness Act, 
the Thompson Divide Withdrawal and Protection Act and their Curaconti National Recreation Area Boundary Establishment Act, and they rolled them all into one large bill. Now, all these measures have strong local support, including different stakeholders and county commissioners in the areas where these lands would be protected. The House passed the bill, but all of Colorado's Republicans voted against the measure. With that much local support, why oppose the bill? (laughs) That's a good question. It seems to be Republicans don't think there is enough local support in communities. So during the House floor debate, Nagoose read off this long list of supporters for the bill, from outdoor groups to hunters to ranchers and local leaders, and then Tipton countered with his albeit smaller list of people who don't support the measure. I think it gets to the question of how much support is enough support. You know, 51 percent, 95 percent. It's still unclear. So what's next for both of these Colorado public lands bills? Well, now the Colorado Wilderness Act waits for House vote. And for the CORE Act, well, Bennett says he's met with ranking member of the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee to have a hearing for the bill. He says that would be a good next step, and he's hopeful that all members of the delegation will support it. I don't know why anybody elected from the state of Colorado wouldn't want to support this legislation, which is why all these elected county commissioners in every one of the counties that benefits from the legislation um, has supported it. So uh, I hope the whole congressional delegation will get on board. Now, Republican Senator Cory Gardner has not come out in support of the bill. As he told us previously, he's not blocking it, he's not stopping it, but he has some concerns. The leaders of the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee sort of pride themselves on a spirit of bipartisanship in that committee. So the fact that Gardner, who sits on that committee and tipped in, aren't signing off on bill means its chances of getting passed out of the Senate are very slim. There has been some good news for public land supporters, though. The Land and Water Conservation Fund got a boost when it comes to funding last week. That's right. Again, the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee passed a bill that would permanently fully fund the Land and Water Conservation Fund last week. The bill was introduced by Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Senator Gardner. Now, Senator Bennett is a co-sponsor of the bill, and this has strong bipartisan support. The Land and Water Conservation Fund doesn't cost taxpayers any money. It's funded through fees and royalties for offshore oil and gas leases in federal waters. And it's supposed to be um, funded at $900 million annually. But Congress determines the level of funding through the budgeting process. And, well, the LWCF doesn't always get fully funded. For example, uh, for this fiscal year, the latest Trump budget not only zeroed out the fund, but they actually tried to claw back money. The House budget currently includes about $524 million for the fund, while the Senate version includes $465 million. What this bill would do is try to give the fund stability. Here's Senator Gardner. Uh, This no longer relies on the whims of Congress, uh, but we know that this effort will continue to benefit our great outdoors. So will this bill pass? The House version passed earlier this year. Uh, The Senate version does have 49 bipartisan co-sponsors, so it's looking good. If there were over 50 co-sponsors, I might be more optimistic. I would also add that the committee advanced the Restore Our Parks Act, which would deal with the National Park Maintenance Backlog, Almost the entire Colorado delegation supports that bill. Only one hasn't signed on as a co-sponsor. Caitlin, thanks for tracking all of this. You're welcome. CPR Washington, D.C. reporter Caitlin Kim on the issues regarding public land in Colorado that are dividing the state delegation. (music) 
RTD is on thin ice with many of its riders. A driver shortage is forcing the agency to drop runs. Its communication systems have failed at crucial times, like in the middle of snowstorms. Now the agency is proposing to cut back on some bus and train lines, at least in the short term. Then, late last week, RTD's top executive, Dave Genova, announced that he'd be stepping down. In a letter to the board of directors, he didn't outline why, but he did say that he's eager to pursue personal interests and he's been planning to retire for several years. CPR's transportation reporter Nathaniel Miner is here with us to tell us how RTD got here. Hi, Nathaniel. Hey, Avery. As I mentioned, RTD has had a few rough months, and some have said those are signs of bigger problems within the agency. Could Genova's departure hurt RTD at a sensitive time? I have heard some worries about that, yes. Uh, this is Natalie Menton, who's on the RTD board. If, if we did not have these looming problems right now, I would say, you know, we can we can get through this. But I think right now we're just a little more challenged because we're getting ready to put these service reductions together. Menton is worried that Genova's departure could mean more staff turnover, especially up high. RTD's top lawyer just announced his retirement as well. But both of those men have worked there for more than a quarter century each, both Genova and the lawyer. And a spokesman says Genova in particular had been thinking about this for a while. But the bottom line here is that Genova leaves the agency without permanent leadership at a really pivotal time. You say this is a really pivotal time. Why is that? It's really a combination of things. They've got budget problems, both uh, next year and long term. Uh, Ridership is down and they have these big projects that they promised 15 years ago that they're still uh, just don't have the money to finish. So uh, RTD covers a huge area where people still rely on cars, right? Like Denver, the whole Denver area was really built for cars. But RTD uh, promised these big projects like the train to Boulder. And it's really having trouble delivering on that. And there's some good reasons for that, like costs went way up, both for raw materials, for right-of-way. And then the Great Recession hit in 2008, 2009. So now RTD says they can't build those projects until 2050. And the effect of that is it's really cutting into people's trust of the agency. And at the same time, the economy's been on a tear for the last five, six years. And that means fewer people are riding because they can afford to drive. They can afford to buy a car. So that means ridership's actually down. And that also makes hiring bus drivers harder, too, because in a down economy, it's easier to recruit bus drivers. But when it's so good, uh, like it is now, people you know don't really want to drive a bus. And so they don't. Are those things that Genova could have fixed? Not all of them, no. He can't control the state of the local economy or the price of raw materials. And he can't make cities build homes in a more transit-friendly, dense way. And that Fast Tracks plan uh, that in 2004, with all these expensive trains, you know, that happened way before he took over. But on the driver shortages, the union says RTD really should have done more and should have done it sooner, both in regards to pay and to working conditions. And the union says that RTD's leadership, including Genova, they really should have been on top of this years ago. So RTD is in a bit of a hole and has to get out of it? That's right, yeah. Can they get out of it? 
Well, I mean, they're in the midst of this big campaign to reinvent or reimagine themselves. And there's a lot up in the air here, like the geographic area that RTD covers. It's huge. It stretches from like Longmont down toward Parker, uh, west up into the mountains. It's a really big area. And it's really expensive to run long-haul buses to those far-flung places. And the board's actually talked about maybe changing RTD's borders to make it smaller. And that would be pretty radical. Do you think a new person can help them provide a reset? That's possible, yeah. I talked with Matt Gray. He's a state representative from up in Broomfield, and that's an area that's waiting for a train. And he told me he just wants RTD's new leader to be honest. If they can't build a train to Boulder, just rip the Band-Aid off and just say it. But Gray says if they do that, they'd also better come to those communities with ideas for a new service because all of those places are still paying RTD's taxes. What happens next for the agency? They probably want a new leader soon. Right. So uh, they're going to meet next week, December 3rd, and uh, they have a few different options. Here's spokeswoman Pauletta Tanilis. They can either go ahead and uh, let Dave go now. They can put him on administrative leave for 60 days, or they could go ahead and have him stay on through the transition for 60 days. Administrative leave basically means he'd be on payroll but wouldn't be involved in any of the day-to-day decision-making. We also might hear who the new interim leader will be at that board meeting next week. Thanks, Nathaniel. You're welcome. Nathaniel Miner covers transportation for CPR News. You can read his ongoing reporting about the issues and the challenges facing RTD and their impact across the Front Range at CPR.org. When we come back, a professor from the University of Colorado travels across the world. It's an emotional journey to connect with the families of people who gave their lives to push for a free Tibet. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Hi, I'm Stuart Vanderwilt, president of Colorado Public Radio. Everything we are today is a result of community support. You've helped create one of the largest public service institutions in our state, locally owned and committed to producing news that's important to Colorado. This is why your end-of-year gift is so important. When you donate today, you'll fuel ambitious plans to grow this vital service in 2020 and beyond. It's easy to do at CPR.org, and thank you. Protesters in Hong Kong are demanding democratic reforms from mainland China. But in Tibet, a different kind of protest that's not getting the headlines right now is also taking place against China, which has occupied Tibet for 60 years. Before we begin this story, a warning. It may be disturbing to some listeners. In the last decade, dozens of Tibetans have taken their own lives to protest the Chinese occupation of their country. They've done this through self-immolation, an act of setting oneself on fire. Carol McGranahan is a professor of Tibetan studies at the University of Colorado Boulder. She and a reporter traveled across the world to interview families of those who've died. It was for a recent story in Outside Online. Carol, welcome to the show. Thank you. You and Tracy Ross, a reporter for Outside Online, traveled to Dharamsala, India to report on these deaths. Dharamsala is the center of Tibetan culture in exile. I understand that more than 160 Tibetans have self-immolated in the last 10 years. Why are they choosing to take their lives this way? 
Good question. This is um, a direct response to Chinese oppression in Tibet. So the Chinese invaded Tibet in the early 50s. By 1959, the leader of Tibet, the Dalai Lama, who's both the political and religious leader, had to flee into exile in to India. Uh, he and everyone else thought his stay in India would only be a couple months long, right? And now 60 years later, he is still in exile. Tibet is, you know, currently colonized, occupied by China. And a number of Tibetans inside Tibet, as well as some Tibetans outside, have decided that drastic measures were needed to um, not just express their political views against ongoing Chinese oppression, but also to try and do something that they thought might be of benefit to other Tibetans in terms of trying to alleviate the suffering that the community was going through. And I understand that the practice of self-immolation, it goes back to the 1960s. Yeah, so actually um, scholars take self-immolation as kind of a quintessential 20th century form of political protest dating back to 1963 in Vietnam with the Buddhist monk who self-immolated to protest the Dieppe regime during the Vietnam War. We have some audio from a relative you spoke with who told the story of his 19-year-old cousin, Chu Ying, who died by self-immolation. The relative tells the story of what happened. Chu Ying was a college student in India, walking to a lecture with friends, but right before the lecture, he told his friends to go ahead without him. And it was at that lecture that the friends started to realize something was very wrong. While the lecture was going on, there was a kind of a slow whisper spreading in the audience. Something uh, disturbing had happened outside. And when the lecture was over, when people were coming out, they found out that Chewing had actually gone into the bathroom, poured petrol on his body, lit himself on fire, rushed out of the bathroom, walked across this corridor carrying a flag and shouting the slogan and then collapses outside near the garden. What did you learn about why this 19-year-old had taken his life in this way? Well, this was a um, very emotional moment to be sitting. Um, so the man speaking here is Tenzin Sundu, who is um, a dear friend of mine, actually, and is the leading Tibetan activist in India. So someone um, who's very involved, actually, in the Tibetan cause, and yet who, like everyone else, was surprised that his young cousin chose to self-immolate. Um, the reason was pretty much immediately clear that he wanted to make a statement, a political statement, you know, regarding Tibet and the Chinese occupation. And what do we know about how well-known these statements become, how far they go in media? Well, they immediately travel within the Tibetan world. So um, Tibetans everywhere, both inside Tibet as well as outside Tibet, you know, find out about these as soon as the information is either smuggled out um, from Tibet to the exile community or, you know, if it happens in exile, then word comes out immediately. As for the rest of the world, that's a, a different story. For a very long time, it was hard to get information on the self-immolations, and actually it still remains so. There are no foreign journalists posted at all in Tibet. You cannot travel there as a, as a foreign journalist, and there's you know, more foreign journalists in North Korea right, than there are in Tibet because there are none there. So 
There was a self-immolation in Delhi in April 2012 that actually a, a young man named Jampa Yeshe who self-immolated in Delhi when the Chinese premier was actually there. And so the world's media was assembled. And so Reuters and AP and, you know, different um, photographers from major world newspapers were able to get their own photographs. And so it was at that moment that the story then shifted somewhat into being a story that was not just being documented on the ground by citizens, but one that the world's media um, was... You know, sadly, in some ways, now able to document themselves. However, the the number of self-immolations that 164 Tibetans have chosen, um, you know, to end their lives in this way, the story still remains underreported. A main focus of the story that you're telling is not just on these young people who have decided to self-immolate, but also on their families. Uh, you talked with the parents of a 16-year-old boy who died by self-immolation. Tell me about that. There's no way to prepare yourself to talk with the parents of a, a teenager who has self-immolated, um, who has chosen to to kill himself. And that is, um, I say that as a scholar of Tibet, uh, as a mother myself, and just as a you know, human being in the world. So in October 2018, a year ago, Tracy Ross, my friend, the journalist, uh, the writer, she and I traveled to India and went to the town of Asansol which is a town west of Calcutta where Tibetan refugees have historically uh, sold sweaters and other clothing items during the winter. And we went there right, to meet um, with the parents of Dorje Sering, who in February 2016, as a 16-year-old boy, self-immolated. His mother, uh, Nima Yangzom, his father, Tuptintashi, um, were individuals to whom I was connected through a Tibetan friend. And we were nervous about meeting them. And from the minute we met them, we both met the most wonderful, welcoming, um, hospitable people. And yet two individuals who clearly um, were racked by grief. They were emotionally devastated. They each had physical repercussions from their son's death. The mother actually had seen her son in the burning state and had tried to put out the flames and so had um, burn scars and, and the pain, you know, the after pain that comes from having had severe burns. The father has a kind of an unexplainable hand tremor as well as loss of hearing, you know, so there's the heartbreak, um, but then also the ways that this sort of pain and grief manifests in the body. So to tell the story of this young man who thought that this would serve his community and, and benefit his um, fellow Tibetans, trying to see the parents making their own way through the grief was absolutely um, just beyond difficult. And yet um, the difficulty that it might have been to try and do this work is but a sliver, right, of the difficulties that persist for the family. And like you said, these are difficult stories to tell. Why do you think it's so crucial to tell them? Suffering and depression continues in Tibet. Um, you know, just recently, uh, it, in September, um, just two months ago, a Tibetan monk was arrested for posting pro-Tibetan language comments on WeChat, on a social media platform, right? So, I mean, just something saying, you know, I think we should teach the Tibetan language in schools. Something that seems so innocuous as that can get you put in jail and disappeared in Tibet. Never mind more, you know, things that more um, overtly or directly challenge the Chinese government, such as having the Tibetan flag or having images of the Dalai Lama or, you know, overtly saying political statements such as, you know, free Tibet, pur rangzin, is how you would say that in Tibetan. You know, Tibet is a place where 
daily oppression, you know, continues. This is what does life look like under colonialism, uh, socialist colonialism in this, in this chance. Um, and this is about self-determination in terms of the sovereignty of a country, the desires of people um, who want to live their lives in a certain political way, religious oppression. Um, but most importantly is not, you know, the professional opinion of, of a scholar like myself, but the fact that these are the voices and actions of the Tibetan community. You went to Dharamsala, where many Tibetans live in exile, but I understand the majority of these deaths, they've taken place in Tibet? Yes. So of the 164 self-immolations, 153 have been inside Tibet, so really the great majority. Uh, Ten have been in exile in India and Nepal, and one has been in China. And as a professor of Tibetan studies, can you give us a quick history of what prompted this occupation? Well, um, Mao Zedong, when he um, established the People's Republic of China in 1949, one of the very first things he said he was going to do was to liberate Tibet. Um, you know, and liberate is a socialist term, meaning that Tibet was going to be liberated from feudalism, from its backward ways, from its religious beliefs, and be brought into the socialist, communist, you know, way of, of being in the world. So, Part of it was the, a socialist effort. Part of it was also Chinese nationalism. Part of it was also an imperial land grab. It's a vast territory, and yet it's one that's very sparsely populated. By bringing Tibet into the boundaries of the People's Republic of China, China gained a border with India, you know, which is the other main power of continental Asia. So this is a huge thing. Tibet also is the headwaters of a majority of the main rivers of Asia. So the Mekong, the Yellow River, the Yangtze, the Brahmaputra, the Ganges all have their headwaters in Tibet. If you control the headwaters, uh, then you control everything that happens downstream. And give us a sense of how Tibetans view this occupation. Well, here's one way to look at it. So many of the self-immolators, some have left behind written testimonies or oral, orally recorded testimonies before they self-immolate. But most in the burning state speak, and they are incredibly consistent with what they say while they're in the burning state. Um, and is things like one I've already said, which is a purangzen, which is, you know, freedom for Tibet, independence for Tibet. Another one that they say, however, um, is a gil rinpoche tsiring. So long life to His Holiness the Dalai Lama, um, which is as much, again, a political statement as it is a religious statement. All of these things are important and consistent sayings that Tibetans are saying now but that also historically are the exact phrases that Tibetans were using in 1959, which was the last period of mass protest that happened right around the time of the Dalai Lama's escape from Tibet. So we see from 1959 to the present day, right, this real um, consistency in terms of Tibetans speaking out politically against the Chinese takeover and rule of their country. And we should say that these deaths, they've tapered off in the last year or so. The last self-immolation was in December. Why are there less of them now? That's a question that we are all still trying to um, answer, and yet that is a very good thing. So they have tapered off. The worst year was 2012. Since then, they have been kind of each year consecutively going down. Um, there has not been a self-immolation in 2019. Why is this? One is um, that in leaders like the Dalai Lama have asked Tibetans to stop doing this, and Tibetans certainly respond right to his um, requests and to his wishes. 
Also, however, the Chinese government has continued to crack down. So if anything, the Chinese government has not um, you know, lifted or, or softened <laughs> their repression, but have made things even worse inside Tibet. And so there might also be a sense among Tibetans inside that, that they have not been effective in political means, as well as a response to, again, leaders such as the Dalai Lama saying, please stop this and find another way right, to um, express yourself. I want to go back to the occupation. The Chinese say that they've put a lot of money into the economy of Tibet. And mm-hmm. your article, it says the GDP growth there is skyrocketing. Does this mean that in some way Tibetans have benefited from occupation? Uh, I I argue no. Um, so... Imagining that the Chinese government had not invaded Tibet, but instead Tibet had continued to, you know, develop along the lines of any other country from, say, 1959 to 2019, you know, we would be talking about, you know, what does the economy of Tibet look like and how has the different five or 10 year plan of the Tibetan government, you know, succeeded or not? So the fact that China rules Tibet means that we have to discuss the Tibetan economy in terms of the Chinese government, right? There's no other way to discuss it. And there have been ups and downs, right, in terms of what um, the Chinese government has accomplished there. Most of the economic growth inside Tibet has actually benefited the Chinese government more so than the Tibetan populace. For Tibetans to succeed in China, and China meaning, you know, Tibet as part of China, and whether we're talking in terms of employment, um, or just life success, right, not just financial or economic success, right, means that you have to align yourself with how the Chinese government determines that. So you have to be able to function, for example, in a Chinese language workplace. You need to be able to think, right, to kind of orient your worldview as well as your aesthetics to a Chinese sense. So it's basically what does it mean to not just take GDP, for example, as a measure of success, but what, what does success look like under colonialism, Right. Um, And you wouldn't argue, for example, that India hadn't, you know, had um, economic growth under the British Empire. Right. And yet that's a very skewed way to say that, um, you know, colonialism is good because there was financial progress. Has the Chinese government said anything in reaction to the self-immolations? The Chinese government um, has had a range of responses over the years. Again, this is something that's been taking place basically over a decade. They have initially tried to deny them. They've tried to say that these are the um, acts of, you know, mentally disturbed people or, you know, people who are bad elements. They have uh, disturbingly arrested family members um, post facto, so after someone has self-immolated. So they've had a range of responses. They have forced communities to go through political re-education. They have taken it as an example of all of the ways that Tibetans are, you know, enemies of the state. Carol, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Carol McGranahan is a professor of anthropology and Tibetan studies at the University of Colorado Boulder. She traveled with reporter Tracy Ross to Dharamsala for a story for Outside Online. It focuses on Tibetans who have self-emulated over the past decade to protest China's occupation of their country.
Colorado's two biggest university campuses have had public incidents of racism this year. Behind the scenes, the schools have also struggled to make their student bodies and staff more diverse and to help all students of color feel welcome. CPR's Haley Sanchez reports. At CU Boulder back in October, students captured on camera when a woman yelled racial slurs at black students on campus. She turned out not to be affiliated with CU, but it led to protests. And student Lauren Jade Arnold told me over the phone that public incidents like that are the tip of the iceberg. Even when there's not overt racism, there's this deep discomfort that people of color feel on campus just because we know that other people are uncomfortable around us. On the first day of one of her classes, the instructor had students play a game. It was diversity bingo, and it asked students to find somebody with a different cultural background from themselves. It just became this really gross game of people coming up to the only minorities in class and then people like judging people based on how they looked to see about their other identities. Arnold didn't report to CU that she felt uncomfortable, but a lot of other people have. Bias-motivated incidents are on the rise. Reports show that in 2018, the school addressed almost three times as many complaints as it did in the previous three years. Many of them were related to race. CU Boulder's administration knows there's a problem, despite what they say is decades of progress. The school has staff dedicated to increasing diversity, and it's committed to making people of color feel included. But some on campus feel like the administration isn't being proactive enough. I think there's a general reluctance on campus to really address race issues head on. Angie Chuang is an associate professor in CU's communication school. I think there's still a feeling that it's uncomfortable or that we only need to talk about it when something racist happens. She says other schools dealing with similar issues have mandated freshman classes on how to be more culturally aware. Chuang teaches courses like this now, but she isn't sure if making it mandatory is the best solution. For one, not everybody in the class is ready for it. Anytime you make it mandatory, there's immediately a pushback or a resistance about, oh, this is just political correctness or... We're just here to be touchy-feely and feel good about ourselves and check off a box. In her class at CU, she says she had one first-year student who was from a rural town in Colorado. And she acknowledged that the first time she interacted meaningfully with a Black person was on the CU campus. CU is not alone in dealing with these issues. Back in September, four students at Colorado State took a photo of themselves in blackface. Blanche Hughes is vice president for student affairs. She says part of the school's job is to help students grow up. That's why you go to college. We all come with different stories. And to be able to appreciate and learn that, and in some cases unlearn things that perhaps stereotypes or things that you heard about a particular group or population because you haven't been exposed to them. Take the blackface incident. One of those students apologized and said that she had no idea how the photo could have been perceived. Both CSU and CU aren't just being reactive when an incident like this comes up. They're trying to make opportunities for people to learn. But some students of color say annual diversity summits and seminars a few times a year aren't enough. And they can't continue to be the ones to educate their peers and teachers. People like Arnold, who's in grad school at CU, are tired of having to always explain the problem. We can't be the expense for that. We can't be like the scapegoats or the test rats for people who have never been exposed to diversity or taken the time to educate themselves about it. Just increasing diversity on campus can help improve that feeling. Even within the CU system, the Denver campus has significantly more diversity among students. And as a result, some say they feel more included. For schools still trying to get there, Chuang says here's what to look for. Do you measure it because there are fewer racist incidents? 
I think the measurement really would be if uh, students are forming relationships out of that class that they would not have formed otherwise, or that the students who walk out of class and have a conversation in the dining hall or after class or working on a group project might be more likely to talk about a racial issue. While there may not be a one-size-fits-all fix, the important thing is that students of color find a place to build community so that they feel supported and eventually graduate. I'm Haley Sanchez, CPR News. When we come back, real people share their stories about marijuana in the new movie Potluck, stories that took a filmmaker down a path she never expected. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. CPR's active community of support has allowed CPR News to increase coverage of our state, CPR Classical to reach more of Colorado, and Indy 1023 to deliver the best in new and local music. Thank you. There are more recreational marijuana dispensaries in Denver than there are Starbucks. What changes has legalized pot brought to the state? That's what filmmaker Jane Wells asked about two dozen people in her new movie, Pot Luck. And the opinions are varied. Anti-cannabis groups in Colorado, I think it was last year or the year before, tried to put a cap on the percentage levels of THC in our products. And people were really scared that was going to pass. And we put up a really big fight about it. We've even had grandparents in this jurisdiction who have provided edibles to their minor grandkids, thinking, well, it was legal, how bad can it be? Those kids ended up having to be rushed to the hospital because of the consequences, the high potency in those edibles. I really believe that it is my job and every other elected official's job to enforce the spirit of that law, of that constitutional amendment, while at the same time trying to figure out how to protect our communities and our children I really love it. In in all my days, I never thought I'd be cooking cannabis products, but here we go. (laughs) And every day I'm getting texts and messages from people how these particular products are healing them. That's Carsey Hawkins, a cannabis trainer and educator, George Brockler, district attorney for Colorado's 18th Judicial District, and Julia Desmond, a CBD farmer. As she made the film, Wells found that her own perspective shifted. Jane, welcome to the program. Hi, great to be here. You're in New York right now, but you lived in Aspen from 2002 to 2006. What do you remember about the attitude toward weed then? When I was living there, it was pretty relaxed. Medical marijuana was happening, and I certainly had friends who had medical cards and used it for bum knees and for skiing accidents and such. Um, But it wasn't really much of a big deal. It just was sort of under the surface, vaguely around. Since you've lived in Colorado, how have you seen things change before you made this film? Well, the first time I really noticed the change was when I went to rent a car at Denver Airport and there was a sign on the car rental counter telling me that I wasn't allowed to drive high. But then when I got to Aspen, the fact that there were six or seven pot shops in a town with a population of, full-time population of about 6,000 people. It's like one per thousand people. That's a lot of penetration into the market. And, you know, you really notice that in in a small tourist town like that. So, yeah, it just seemed to be everywhere. Now, you've come back to Colorado to make this film about Colorado post-legalization. There's very little narration in Potluck. What we do hear is about two dozen people sharing their experiences and opinions about marijuana over the course of about an hour. Tell me me what you wanted to achieve with this style. I just really like that sort of fly-on-the-wall style of filmmaking because 
all the work I do is really about letting people share their stories and hearing their voices. So I typically go and talk to people, interview them and let them tell their own story. So in a longer form like that, this, that's pretty much what we did. And I think is part of it not wanting to come down on one side or another of an issue? That's right. Um, I really wanted to sort of show this is what the landscape looks like. This is what it's like in Colorado today. And, you know, you make up your own mind whether you think it's a good idea or not such a good idea. Now, I do want to explore your personal opinions on pot because you were in favor of legalization at one point. What did you hope would happen when Colorado legalized marijuana? I think like a lot of liberal progressives, I thought that it would somehow be a magical solution to the bad effects of the war on drugs, which had unfairly incarcerated people of color. I'd read the book, The New Jim Crow, and understood that it was a lot to do with the drug laws, that there was so much incarceration of people of color. So I just assumed that somehow this would magically make everything all right. And as we filmed, I found that my opinions were shifting on that. And tell me about what in the process of filmmaking actually changed your mind. Honestly, it was a gradual process. I just started to see how, you know, how much the cannabis industry was an industry rather than just a way for people to smoke some weed if they felt like it. And I don't think that before I'd ever imagined how how enormous an industry it was and how it was just the latest manifestation of capitalism in our culture. That was one thing. And another big point was that I didn't understand until we were filming how difficult it was for people of color to enter the industry and the problems that they had in federal aid housing. Several people in your film spoke to those social issues. The first person you'll hear is Dwayne Meeks with the Colorado African-American Drug Policy Coalition. The laws are a lot more difficult for African-Americans to get into the field um, because of the red tape, you know, the qualifying to, you know, the background checks. So if you are going into this field and you have some type of, if you have drug history, and you turn your life around and you're trying to take advantage of the boom in the business. So, you know, it's a selection process. And like I said, over 60% of dispensaries are in low-income neighborhoods. And those are all ran by uh, Caucasian people. Let's stop thinking that you can generate $7 billion like that in a year without capitalizing on somebody. And remember that the somebodies that we usually capitalize inside of this country when it comes to vice substances are minorities. At the Governor's Amendment 64 Implementation Task Force, we didn't even talk about homelessness. So really what we would call it is kind of an unintended consequence that has just manifested itself out through our community. You know, the mayor of Denver calls a lot of what we deal with urban travelers. And he too has said that he knows, and I don't want to speak for him, but, I don't, but he knows that marijuana has a part of this. You also heard there from Ben Court, an addiction specialist in Boulder, and John Jackson, Greenwood Village police chief. Personal concerns aside, your goal in making this film was to talk to people on both sides of this issue. And one of the most intriguing moments for me is the scene in a barbershop. You've got four men, they're all people of color, and they all have different opinions about weed. It's still got its, its overtones of 
of a street hustle to it. You know, it's not, it's not fully established, but it's definitely here to stay. That's Thomas Hernandez. He's got a lot of concerns about legalization. But here's his barber. Colorado is a great land of opportunity. There's a lot of opportunity out here. It got better with marijuana. When marijuana was legalized, it definitely got better. And then the cool thing is with Denver being the center hub with a lot of airlines, people it's easy can take a one-trip one ticket and, and be right here and get that experience. I mean, increase, I mean, since they legalized, it affected me is my property value went up at my house. Um, my uh, clientele has picked up. A lot of people moving out here. Dre also works at the barbershop. Some days I feel like slapping the hell out of you, especially if I don't smoke. You know? <laughs> no, nah, but honestly, like sometimes I can come in and have a horrible attitude. And, you know, it is a part of an, an addiction. But after I smoke, I feel better and I can get along with Boogie and most of my clients. How'd you get connected with this barbershop and what stood out to you from that conversation? I got connected to the barbershop through Thomas Hernandez, who was the man having his hair cut. So he invited us along for the ride. And then I met his barber, who's a friend of his from his cigar smoking club. So as with many things with this film, one person introduced me to the next one. So that was just um, incredibly serendipitous. But it, it just was a... The barbershop is really a place to go and to listen to different voices from that community. Um, and it was sort of fascinating to hear how they all had different points of view, um, which is exactly what I hoped would happen, that everyone didn't agree straight off. You've screened Potluck in Colorado. Tell me about how the response has been. Well, the response was more positive from the people who are opposed to legalization. Um, And that somewhat surprised me, but they saw the film as really speaking to their issues. So I was pleased about that. I think some of the people who are in the film representing the other side of the argument were perhaps less thrilled. But I think we were just sort of at the crest of a wave, understanding that maybe the marketing around this industry has maybe been more enthusiastic than than it might have been or should have been. There's been a lot of talk about how cannabis is harmless, and there's been a lot of marketing around that and a lot of money spent on publicizing that point of view. And I think what we tried to show is that there are harms associated with legalization, and that doesn't necessarily benefit people who are in the industry. Ben Court, the addiction specialist in Boulder, made a point along those lines that really stuck in my head. He was examining a cannabis-infused chocolate bar. It comes back to this thing that we've been talking about for years without FDA involvement. Nobody's making sure that some guy's toenails aren't in here. You consider yourself to be very progressive, and you said that some people have watched this film. They've labeled you a prohibitionist. And what has that been like for you to field those kinds of responses? It's just another example of how bifurcated we are. It's like you're either all in, or you're a prohibitionist. And that isn't really how I see the world. I mean, I see the world as as having a little more nuance than that. And um, I'm not a prohibitionist. I think I'm, I think I'm, I would say, I'm really in favor of decriminalization of of cannabis and the recategorization of the drug. Um, But I'm not opposed to it violently. I mean, I understand as well as anyone that the harms that alcohol does and it's legal. I understand the harms that sugar does and it's legal too. But uh, but it's sort of like 
that's just the label you get if you try and raise some questions about it. Now, you're making a film about weed, and I've got to ask, how often were the people that you interviewed high? Oh, quite high, quite a bit of the time, and that was kind of a bit of fun, I suppose, along the way. Certainly, I was offered a lot as I was filming, and um, that's not something that we would ever do. Did that surprise you? It did, because I reflected on that afterwards, thinking that if we had been doing a film about Scotch whiskey, for instance, I don't think that people would have been really drunk while we filmed them. I'd like to think they wouldn't have been. And I think that's one of the interesting grey areas there, is that I feel like socially it's totally okay to be high, really high from from weed, in ways that it probably isn't okay to be completely blind drunk. So there's a sort of double standard there. What kind of conversations do you hope to start with your film? Um, I'd really like to start a conversation about understanding the role of capitalism here and how much the desire of certain people to make huge amounts of money of the latest uh, available product is is shaping policy. Um, and I'd also really like to start a conversation about about what harms, hidden harms there might be, and just how we market new product. I think that, you know, there's a lot of discussion right now about Juul and vaping and whether Juul should have been or was marketed as a safe alternative to cigarette smoking, and that's now being questioned. And I feel it's a very good parallel with the, with the cannabis legalization. It's been marketed and proposed to voters as completely harmless, safer than alcohol. And we're now realizing that that isn't necessarily the case. And I, I really want to start a conversation about truth and truth in advertising and truth in marketing and truth in lobbying around new products. So in a lot and of ways, this kind of comes into the conversation of what businesses owe to consumers. Jane, thank you so much for having this conversation. Oh, my pleasure. And it's great to have a conversation about it in Colorado, too. That's filmmaker Jane Wells. Her new movie, Potluck, came out this month. It's streaming at threegenerations.org. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Avery Lill, and this is Colorado Matters from CPR News.